I'm very excited to welcome a brand new guest to Church and Culture. His name is David Hackbridge Johnson. He lives in London. He's a composer, performer, and writer. He has written 17 symphonies, four concerti, some two dozen tone poems, an opera, several operas actually, 19 piano sonatas, chamber works, 10 string quartets, and over 100 songs in various languages. He studied violin with Louis Rutland, piano with Martin Wilson, and singing with Arthur Reckless before becoming a jazz drummer and pianist. He also has a Ph.D. from the University of Kingston. His music has been recorded on Tableau, Steinway, Toccata Classics. Many of uh, what we'll hear today are from the three volumes of Toccata Classics orchestral works of David Hackbridge Johnson. A few years ago, Lowell Lieberman, or a friend of mine, recorded an album of his piano music on Steinway, and his writings, poetry and essays, have appeared in a number of magazines and, and newspapers, including The Guardian, the very prestigious P.N. Review, Poetry Salzburg Review, Fortnightly Review, and the Havergal Brian Newsletter. He has a recent premiere of the opera Madeleine, commissioned by the Surrey Opera under Jonathan Butcher, and an opera Blaze of Glory, commissioned by the Welsh Natural Opera and conducted by Stephen Higgins. The Blaze of Glory played to full houses in Wales and England and was nominated for two International Operas Awards. David, I'm just curious, what is Blaze of Glory about? Well, Blaze of Glory came about when I met the librettist Emma Jenkins, who is herself half Welsh, and she pitched me this story, this incredible story, based largely on truth, about a Welsh mining village whose male voice choir has been decimated in a pit explosion, and their choir master uh, is uh, so depressed he doesn't really want to start it up. Uh, this is Daffod Pugh, who's uh, the main male character. And the redoubtable Miss Price, who is the accompanist, she manages to get his creative juices going so that the choir then flourishes. And we did this just after lockdown. And it, it had a rather special feeling to it because during the pandemic, obviously, music wasn't happening. It was a very quiet world. And to have this feel-good show, essentially, to have this show talking about miners getting their choir going in the 1950s was quite appetite, I think. So that's no wonder it about. did so well. Mm, now, you yeah, have... It hit the nerves, people. Mm. You have 17 symphonies. We're going to listen to excerpts from both the 7th and the 9th. We're going to begin with the 9th. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear, an excerpt from that symphony. Well, I think it's just the start of the symphony, which is a, a really large-scale work, which I wrote in around 2010. And like virtually all of my music up to that point, I wrote it really just for myself. I had no hope of performance. I was an unperformed uh, composer hidden away. And I sent this music. I thought, well, what the hell? I'll send it, <laughs> send it to Martin Anderson, who right. is the uh, producer at Takata yeah, He's been on this show several times. All right. Well, we've known each other for 30 years. In fact, the first thing he said in his email to me was, well, I've known you for 30 years. I didn't know you were doing this kind of thing. <laughs> and he, 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 said he, he came out with a few other sentences uh, to describe his reaction to the works. I won't repeat them on air, but suffice it to say they... They seem to show his great enthusiasm for the piece. Martin, they were colorful. Knowing Martin, they were colorful words. They were colorful, and it was in a very broad Scottish accent. And <laughs> uh, he then sent this. This was this was just a, 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 a music program file. It was it was space invader noises. It wasn't a proper orchestra, obviously. But there was enough in it for, for both Martin and the conductor Paul Mann to say, well, actually, if we realise this with, as it turns out, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, this is going to be quite something. It certainly was for me. <laughs> well, let's let's begin by listening to the opening of your, that David Hackbridge Johnson 
Symphony Number no. 9. engaging opening to your Ninth Symphony. David, do you have any composers who've inspired you? Oh, yes. I mean, the list would be almost endless if I was to, you know, go through the entire a number of number of composers who have inspired me. But I think certainly in writing that piece, I was aware that I was writing a piece that this was the piece that was in my head and had to come out on the page. And I was aware that it had this thrusting narrative drive throughout, combined with a love of counterpoint. This symphony has not one, but two passacalias in it. There's a passacalia in the uh, second movement and there's a passacalia in the finale. So I was very interested in counterpoint, but I also wanted to combine it with something that was very, very dramatic and thrusting, if you like. So I suppose the composer's well, I don't really have in mind composers when I write, but retrospectively you look back and you think, oh, well, yes, I can, I can hear a bit of this, that and the other. And I don't know, some of, the, some of the symphonies of the early part of the 20th century that have always fascinated me, like Arnold Bax's Sixth Symphony, which I believe is in G-sharp yeah. minor, at least for the first 12 bars or so, that kind of dramatic scene where there's no program as such, but you're, you're, you're free to create pictures or landscapes in your mind. Uh, but really, it's completely abstract music. I, I mean, I, I wrote a, it. I just, I, we did a complete set of shows on the symphonic work of George Lloyd. Oh, yes. Yes. And yes, for some reason, that, you're... That for some reason I was reminded of Lloyd when I was listening. Well, I, went, I saw George Lloyd conduct. He came to Croydon and conducted uh, a choral work. And one of the things that impressed me about not only his music but his conducting was that he, he was a he was quite a a, a, a neat man, but he was a ball of energy, and the way he conducted was in this very, very energetic, forceful way, and he was singing along to the music and grunting with encouragement. And I thought, and he was in his 80s, he died not long after, he was in his 80s. And I thought, well, he's a pretty cool guy, you know, he's, and he was at that time against the, the fashions of music, the, his tonal style of music was rather out of fashion, but he, he was lucky and that he had some great advocates like 
uh, Sir Edward Downs and, and people that would actually say, well, no, we're going to play this music regardless of its stylistic, you know. Well, his, and Albany Records uh, really took him on as Toccata has taken you on. Now tell me, tell well, us about the, tell us about the motet we're about to hear. Well, uh, I've always been in love with choral music. I wasn't lucky enough to be in a choir when I was a young boy, so I had a, a I don't know whether I had a good treble voice or not, but I was always in love with uh, choral music. My father was a choir master at St. Boniface German Catholic Mission Church in Whitechapel in the East End of London, and there was a thriving community, and the choir was taken from the locals, not all of whom could read music, but my father and the choir agreed that they should be doing the best possible music, so he wrote, learnt, sort of note-bashed, if you like, uh, masses by Mozart, Haydn, Schubert, some exotic composers, not very well known, Erb, Nussbaumer, and uh, my favourite, Methsvessel. And obviously, as well as the ordinary of the Mass, they used to do motets, usually during communion, and in places where there are moments in the Mass where you can perform motets, and they would do, you know, the, some of the great motets, Vittoria and people like that. So that kind of music has always been in my mind. It was always part of my youth. I sat in the organ loft listening to all of this stuff when I was six years old. And it didn't seem to me to be at all extraordinary to start writing motets without any words back for orchestra. And I've written, I think, well, I think it's nine so far. Yeah, this is number two. Who, Who's going to be two, performing yeah. this motet number two? Well, I think this is also on the volume one, isn't it? I think it's the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Paul Mann. Well, let's listen. was the motet number two for orchestra by David Hackbridge Johnson and again very communicative uh, very expressive and very uh, pleasing to the ear David well I wrote that piece partly with another favorite composer of mine in mind I nearly studied with him unfortunately he retired from the Guildhall School of Music before I could get there or perhaps he got on the grapevine that I was coming and thought I'd better clear out. <laughs> and Rob, uh, oh, yeah, Rob, we love Rob Breyer. I think he's a great composer. I think he's he's not a demonstrative composer in the way that would, you know, uh, shatter your wine glasses. In, in no. Some senses. He's a modest composer, but I think he has true greatness. 
Yes, um, he does. So I, so I, was, I, I missed him by a year. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I was run over by one of his students' wives, if that counts as a connection, when I was, uh, how old was I? I was about nine. And I crossed the road and I was knocked over by Mrs. Squibb, who was in a mini. Oh, um, no. Wasn't going and Mr. Squibb, David Squibb, was a student of Edmund Rubra and uh, wrote music <laughs> himself. And I thought, well, if I can have lessons with Mr. Squibb, maybe eventually he can pass me on to me the, Rubber. the Rubber. They owed you. My they owed you. Yes, they did. They did. But uh, <laughs> my mother had this idea as well. But unfortunately, you know, I was only nine. I was a slightly ordinary violinist, so there was no, no composition to show for at that age. Well, David, what about the communion antiphon number 14 we're about to hear? Well, this the inspiration for this really takes me back again to my youth at St. Boniface. Uh, the communion antiphon is, I think, quite a special moment in the Mass because certainly at St. Boniface it, it, there was a lot of silence uh, before the prayers were said. And in between prayers, my uncle, who is still alive, uh, Roy Bates, his job was to ring the communion bells. They had a set of beautiful... So he was a lector? Yes, and he, 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 he had the, the job uh, in, the, in, in these moments during the communion and also during the Eucharistic prayer. At certain moments, he would ring these beautiful bells in a certain order. And I was fascinated by this. And you can hear these bells right at the beginning of this communion antiphon, which, again, is enough... Another one of my rather large series of uh, pieces. This is number 14, I think, isn't it? Let's listen to your communion antiphon. Quite beautiful, David. That was the communion antiphon number fourteen. And I'm, I please pardon me because I'm always hearing uh, things that please me. And I had a little sense of Bernard Herman in what you just wrote there. Oh, really? That's very interesting. I mean, Bernard Herman. Uh, well, apart from being one of the greatest film commands, I adore film music. If someone says to me, "All oh, that." That piece there, David, that sounds a bit cinematic to me. They probably mean it as an insult, but I always take that as a compliment. No, it's, when you think, think of you know, when you think of uh, Herman and Korngold and Rosia yeah, and so I, many uh, and uh, film music, David Jackson, uh, you know, incredible composers. I believe that I, film music kept great tonal music alive for thirty or forty years. Well, I think so, and I think I think there was a, a pe people say that Corngold 
sounds like film music. No, film music, great film music, sounds like corngold. <laughs> That's right. Around. I mean, it really he, set the mold. You know, he was performing for Mahler when he was eleven. You know, I, I know he's he's probably he's probably uh, you know he's probably second only to Mozart and Mendelssohn for being yes. the prodigy of all time. And in fact, I, me and my wife we went to his opera was put on quite recently at English National Opera, the Torterstadt. And oh, he wonderful. Wrote, I think, I, oh, he was the grand old age of 19. Yes. And he... it, was, it was extraordinary because we were both deeply moved and we thought, well, how can someone who is essentially still a child actually feel all those deep, deep, deep human emotions? It seems to be a very great mystery to me. Yes. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that you were a jazz drummer and pianist. And we have the Waverly Place rag that we're going to play shortly. Tell us about that. Well, this really came about. I started out in jazz playing the drums. And then I, after a while, after maybe a decade, I moved mainly to the piano. And then uh, ended up on the violin doing Stefan Grappelli, Django Reinhardt repertoire. Oh. I, think, I think I was, my back was beginning to suffer. So, the instruments became smaller and smaller. But um, uh, Waverly Place, if I remember correctly, it's a long time since I wrote this piece, is where Fats Waller was born. And Fats Waller, to me, is he's a genius. He's a phenomenal musician. He, he was given Tin Pan Alley material, which somehow he transmuted into gold. Right. And he has the most gorgeous tone. Uh, of all the, the jazz pianists for me, possibly tied with Art Tatum. Again, there's this, this plush, gorgeous piano tone. And of course, uh, Rachmaninoff and Horowitz used to, used to pay homage to these pianists. I, really, I did not know that. Yes, they used, to, particularly Tatum, they used to, they used to go and, uh, and, and watch Tatum and, uh, and, uh, Ho Horowitz famously said, if Tatum takes up classical music, I'm retiring tomorrow. <laughs> I love it. I love it's that. Amazing well, compliment. I who, will, who will be playing the rag? For, who will be playing the rag for us? Well, I'm I'm playing it actually. I've made a couple of albums of, of piano jazz, solo piano, in the stride style, and this is my own homage uh, to to Fats, the immortal Fats Waller. Well, let's listen to David Hackbridge Johnson play his Waverly Rag, excuse me, his Waverly Place Rag.
Well, I'm smiling and I'm tapping my foot, and I'm sure our listeners are too. That was my guest, David Hackbrick Johnson, composer, performer, playing his own Waverly Place rag, a tribute to Fats Waller. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with David. back with David Hackbridge Johnson. Uh, his music is delightful. His performance is delightful, and his conversation is delightful. So, David, we're so glad you're you're on Church and Culture. Now, we're going to change the mood for a bit. Here is a piece that you said you wrote for your Ph.D., which is Green Sky Over Klingon. Could you tell us about this? Uh, yes, yeah, Green Sky Over Quonoth, which is the home planet of the Klingons. Now, when I, when I was uh, happily I- I accepted on the PhD course, I had a marvellous supervisor called Tim Ewers, and uh, he said, well, you know, for a PhD, you've got to show new knowledge and new ways of writing music. So I thought, well, I'd, I'd better crank it up. So I have written a lot of experimental music, but this is my climax of my experimental work to date. And I decided to write a libretto in my own dialect of Klingon, who's to say it's not the correct way of speaking and then i invented it uh, based on the klingon from obviously the star trek series and i also decided to use no normal instruments i sampled i should say normal western classical instruments i sampled various instruments from all over the world having to answer very stiff questions about appropriation or misappropriation, which I seem to satisfy the, the supervisors with, and produced this score from his uh, sound files, which were all improvised and then stitched together uh, to create, actually, an opera, which is Handelian in structure. I think the bit that we're about to hear is the opening recitative, where the narrator of the story sets the scene for what's going to be a, eventually going to be a terrible war to the death between the Klingons and the Karks, who are really, they're worse than the Klingons, believe you me. You don't want to meet these guys. So the music's well, pretty extreme. <laughs> let's, let's listen to your particular contribution to the whole cosmos of Star Trek. Let's listen. Oh, 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 oh,
David, I can say that is the most unusual music we've ever played on Church and Culture by far. <laughs> I should but it's a lot. Of, it was a lot of fun to listen to. Well, it was it, it, it was it was a pain to write uh, because it all had to be. I should say actually in passing that uh, if anyone listening to this is worried about the physical health of the performers, it's all me. I played all the instruments. And I thought it was your voice. I did. I thought it was your voice. <laughs> Well, I remain in rude health, so there were no <laughs> ill effects. But the amount of, because it was all done by, by, well, I suppose in the old days you called it tape slicing, but editing, digital editing, it took thousands of hours to construct because it, 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 it all had to be done bit by bit. Uh, it was, it was fun, but absolutely exhausting because the whole piece lasts over an hour. It's a full one act opera. Wow. Wow. Well, I take it as we move to your symphony number 13, changing sound worlds a bit. Yes, I wrote this symphony. It's another ball of energy piece. It has a, a reflective slow movement, uh, but uh, the outer movements are very energetic. I wrote it because when my ninth symphony was performed, it was the first really major piece of mine that had really been done. And I, I was obviously very pleased. The orchestra are amazing. And I was so thrilled that I immediately had other pieces in my head. I'd already written some years previously, uh, 10, 11, 12, actually 11 is not finished yet. But I got home and I wrote 13 very, very quickly because I was so thrilled that actually at last I was hearing some of my pieces. There you go. They were, you know, so out, out came number 13 quite quickly. Well, let's listen to, is this the opening of it? Yes, it's just the opening three minutes. Let's hear the opening of the Symphony Number no. 13 by David Hackbrick Johnson. That was the opening to David Hackbridge Johnson's 13th Symphony, which is uh, three parts. That was the Allegro, followed by Poco Linto and Allegro alla Burlesca. And I, I want to tell the listeners that when I first began listening to David's music on Toccata, there's three volumes of orchestral work. I started with the volume one, which is Symphony Number no. 9, with the motet at the end. But I listened to it without blinking an eye. 
I just I just sat there and enjoyed it all the way through. Wasn't I felt no distraction whatsoever. I just felt like this is really good music, and that's when I wrote to David and asked him to be on the show. And I'm so I'm so glad you're here, David. It's lovely to be here from across the pond. That's right. Now we have here how many nocturnes have you written? We have here nocturne number seven. Well, that's as far as I've got so far, and in fact, I wasn't really planning to write a seventh because I wrote six of them quite the first six quite a long time ago. But um, with the wonders of social networking, I got a message out of the blue from Lowell Lieberman. Of course, I knew who he was. I know some of his music, and we got chatting. And he mentioned during COVID, actually, where he obviously wasn't nobody was getting music performed. He hatched this plan to go back to the piano and produce some piano CDs and produced a marvellous recital disc of pieces by himself and Liszt and various other people. And he wanted to do another disc of all sorts of various composers. And uh, we had such a great chat. And funnily enough, that very night, I had a very weird dream. It was actually nothing to do with Lowell, but it was a, a weird impressionistic or symbolist dream where I was in a rather uh, d- uh, distressed landscape and on a rock was sitting a devil-like creature playing a lyre that was it's tuned to a very, very strange scale and the music started up and when I woke up I could still hear this weird scale in my head so I immediately wrote it down and maybe uh, in the morning, by the end of the morning the piece was finished, and I, I sent it to Lowell, and he said, wow, you know, this is, this is and this was the nocturne, the devil's liar. And he then went to the piano, and I think a few days later, he sent me a performance of it. And then a few days after that, he said, you know what, David, I've decided to do the whole album with just your music. Yeah, I'm, I I'm, look, I'm looking at it. It's really a beautiful uh, album. Well, and just, uh, for I, those who are interested, it's entitled The Devil's Liar. It's on Steinway. And uh, the pianist is the, is the great Lowell Lieberman. Well, I was ridiculously happy, you know. Of course, and, uh, I'd be too. He's a, such a phenomenal musician. And, you know, he learns all about music in a matter of weeks. And it's not easy. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't play my own pieces. Very often, because I know I've got to practice like hell. <laughs> well, let's Jesus, listen to let's awesome. listen to Lowell Lieberman play your nocturne number seven.
Nocturne Number no. 7 for piano, played by Lowell Lieberman, composed by David Hackford Johnson, our guest today on Church and Culture. That has a very searching feel to it, David. Yes, I mean, it came out of this very strange dream, so I was really looking to recreate as much of that as, of that as I could in, in sonic form. So, it was, yeah, it was a bit of a musical haunting, really. Yeah. Well, Coleridge did pretty well with dreams. Mm. Uh, mm. No reason why you shouldn't. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> now, we come we come to a waltz, and I'm going to try to pronounce it, Merovinian. The well, waltz. I think that's probably as close as I'm going to get, so <laughs> Merovinian, maybe. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the Merovingians were a dynasty that ruled what we call France now. They were the, fr- the Franks from the 5th century until the middle of the 18th, before the Carolingians took over Charlemagne and, and company. Now, what what inspired you to write a waltz with their name on it? Well, I love reading about uh, medieval history, and I was particularly taken with the Merovingians, who, like a lot of dynasties, have a few good guys, but mainly bad guys, and some beautiful women and some terrible women. So there's all sorts of uh, murders and uh, intrigues going on. And I decided to, this is a long time ago actually, I decided to write a ballet based on uh, episodes from Merovingian history. And I never finished it. But I resurrected this waltz, which needed a bit of orchestration and touching up. Uh, to to go on the third volume of the Sakata Classics uh, labels, uh, volumes of my music. And uh, it, it's uh, unashamedly ballet music. I love going to the ballet. I find, even if I don't know what they're dancing about, I find the ballet just extraordinarily moving. And some of the greatest yeah. music has been written for it. The ballet That's was one of my first loves in classical music. Oh, I mean, I, you know... It, it, if, if I go to Tchaikovsky, I have to sit on the back with a handkerchief. I, if I go yeah. to Swan Lake or Nutcracker, I find I'm, I'm, I'm so moving. It's not really the story, because you know the story, you've seen it a hundred times. But the music and the dance, that combination seems yeah. to me, because I, you know, I'm, I was always at discos treading on the ladies' toes. You know, I'm absolutely hopeless. But to see how light the human body can be made so you, oh. you, so you look at they must be so, but of course they're incredibly strong. They're not. Yeah. <laughs> well, the athleticism is the athleticism oh. is is un, unrivaled, in my opinion. It literally takes my breath away when I go. Yeah. So I thought, well, here's my little contribution to ballet. <laughs> so if anyone wants to choreograph it, well, they're welcome to get in touch. Well, let's listen to the. I'm going to call it the Merovingian waltz. That's better, yeah. Thank you. 
Just delightful, David. The Merovingian Waltz. I want. I wanted to hear more of that. Yes, it's. Uh, there are a few other. There are a few other dances from that aborted ballet which I might dig out. I think uh, you should. Not enough. Not enough to make a full ballet, but very you know, atmos- one day I Yeah, <laughs> very atmospheric. Reminded me of Franz Schmidt. Oh well, now you're talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really extraordinary composer. Uh, I have uh, I, I have this encyclopedia of classical music tumbling around my mm. head. I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm the same. I'm always I'm always I'm listening to music all the time, and then when that gets switched off, my own music starts up in my head. So it's a constant, it's a, a noisy household. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, we have. Uh, a final piece entitled Aspens, which I've listened to, and, and having spent some time in Aspen at the Aspen Institute, um, oh. I had some a visual scene for this this wonderful piece of music. Where, where did your Aspens come from? Well, I've never been to Aspen. It's in Colorado, isn't it? I've never been there, but um, I do know the Edward Thomas poem which ends, uh, and I, I think his poetry is extraordinary, it inspires me. Yeah. The last verse about the book here says, Whatever wind blows, while they, that is the aspens, the trees, and I have leaves, we cannot other than an aspen be that ceaselessly, unreasonably grieves, or so men think who like a different tree. I think it's just, I mean, that's just the last stand. That's great. I, like all of us, inevitably in our lives, I think we suffer grief and we suffer loss. And for me, that absolutely is, in this poem, it reminds me of people I've lost. And also it's a poem set in nature, in the countryside, where uh, if I can get out of London, me and my wife, we go and we, we just walk in the country lanes and in the hills. And that's both beautiful to be in nature but somehow mystical I'm always reading Edward Thomas I'm always reading William Blake and I love the paintings of Samuel Palmer there's a mystical quality to mm-hmm. certain aspects of English landscape but it's you know yeah. cut my heart open and it's in there you, know? you and I must ha- must share some DNA David because I <laughs> uh, <laughs> so let's well, listen it's, to, it's, to let's listen to Aspens, a beautiful piece.
Well, we heard a few minutes of what is a 10-minute piece entitled Aspens. And really, of all that I've listened to, one of my favorite of your pieces, David. I, I want to say thank you for taking the time on Church and Culture, and I'm going to ask you right now if you'll please come back. I'd love to, and it's been an, it's been an enormous pleasure to share these little tunes with you and your listeners. Thanks for having me. And we'll dig deeper next time. To all of you who are listening, we'll say goodbye to David Hackberg Johnson, and in a few minutes I'll be back with another wonderful guest. <laughs>